the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. It's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hello and welcome to another week of the Tree of the Back podcast brought to you by BackpageFootball.com where we try to make sense of the Premier League and topics around the football world that matters most to us. I'm joined, as usual, by Phil Green and Enda Higgins. How are you, lads? Good evening, lads. So, not a lot of things have been putting a smile on Jurgen Klopp's face lately, but Irish debutant Quivine Kelleher did so on Tuesday night with his Champions League clean sheet. We'll be looking at his performance, as well as Klopp's war on fixture congestion. We'll take a look at what's gone wrong at Real Madrid, who faced a very real prospect of Europa League relegation. And later on, we'll be chatting to Art de Roche from The Athletic about Arsenal's start of the season and if Mikel Arteta can steer them in the right direction. Um, first of all, lads, really the first bit of good news we've had from an Irish perspective for a long while. Um, Cuivin Kelleher got the nod in goals against Ajax last night um, due to an injury to Alisson. Kelleher selected ahead of Adrian um, much to, to the relief of, of a lot of fans, I can imagine. But Kelleher looked, didn't really look fantastic in his couple of League Cup cameos um, over the past couple of years so far. But Phil, do you think he's done enough with that performance last night to establish himself as as the number two to Alisson and, and maybe into the conversation for um, for the number one shirt for, for Ireland? Yeah, well, like I, I was massively surprised when I saw the team news come through. Um, pleasantly surprised to see that he was there. Um, it it became obvious after the game. Uh, Klopp kind of said that they picked Kelleher for for his total package, basically meaning that his distribution is better than Adrian's. Um, and kind of you're willing to take a gamble on his lack of experience versus Adrian's bad experience, maybe. Um, he he definitely <laughs> like like you. I was a little worried because. He's largely played so far in League Cup teams that have been heavily rotated, like most obviously and famously the five all with Arsenal last season when they ended up winning on penalty shootouts. And he conceded five goals in that. And you kind of worried that his exposure in these kind of disjointed teams maybe wasn't doing him uh, doing doing him a lot of justice. And um, but last night, I mean, his distribution was good, which is what he was picked for in terms of kind of beating the Ajax press. Um, but the saves that he made most obviously the one from Huntler laid on. Um, he had a presence about him that I thought maybe he hadn't had in his Liverpool performances thus far. And again, it's kind of hard to judge a player dealing in a team with 11 changes and no kind of none of the recognised or established side playing. It's always harder to, to stand out in, in those sort of scenarios. I thought he really stood up. I thought he was great. Um, I had the same thought as you about Ireland. I mean, if he is Liverpool's number two now, um, Adri- or uh, Alisson is supposed to be out for 10 to 14 days so at a minimum that would be um, it'd be the weekend against Wolves it'd be Midgetland next week and it'd be Fulham um, and it, whatever scraps of games that being number two for mm-hmm. Liverpool means between now and March is that enough if Randolph is going to be in the same position for West Ham do you trade off being Liverpool's number two against the experience Randolph has he's definitely made it a conversation if he is Liverpool's number two um, yeah. I'd love to see him play on Sunday against Wolves from an Irish point of view and from a Liverpool point of view, I also wouldn't be surprised if they bring Adrian back in. Um, but Kelleher's put Klopp in a position now where it's like he's given him a decision to make. It's not just an easy out from Kelleher put his hand up last night to become number two. Um, I thought I thought he was really really impressive. Yeah, I think like why not be in discussion for Ireland? We've mentioned now for weeks that Stephen Kenny needs something to go his way. You know. Yeah. Um, and this could be it, you know what I mean? A, a young goalkeeper who, as you said last year in that Arsenal match, I mean, he he was just a bit of a mess, to be honest, but I mean, he was very young uh, and everything kind of went against him on the night. Um, whereas, you know, physically, how imposing was yesterday. I mean, for, still only for a 22-year-old for, for a goalkeeper, mm. you know. Um, mm. You know, he looked very strong, looked very powerful. I mean, the Huntler save, save sticks out, the one from Klassen in the first half, but I really liked the the save at full stretch from the uh, Gravenbeck shot. Yeah. Um, 
just a very strong arm to get that over the bar because Gravenbeck scored a similar goal like that a week ago um, in the Champions League, actually. So, I mean, he just looked really, really impressive, far more confident than what we've seen before. And, you know, Randolph hasn't exactly been pulling up trees for Ireland, um, even though, you know, defensively we've had a decent record with him. Mm. But I just think, you know, if this Kenny transition, this fresh start that we've talked about that we want to see from him in March, it could start from the back with somebody like uh, Kelleher and then Ireland could just build from there, you know. So I'd imagine he'll he'll be in the discussion at least. It, it, it doesn't need to be a dramatic kind of overhaul straight away, but mm. it'd be great to see him get some minutes in the next international matches and just something for... You know, any Irish fans look forward to him. I was delighted with his performance last night, even if it was for Liverpool, you know, because (laughs) it's been a while since we've had, you know, any real Irish players kind of do anything for any of the top Premier League clubs, you know. Um, And that was a big part of our national team success when we were doing um, some good things. So, no, I was delighted for him and I thought he had had a great match. I was very nervous for him because it really was a big match for Liverpool following the draw at the weekend and dropping points to Atlanta last week. So this wasn't... You know, Bayern Munich going to Atletico with their B team. You know, this was a, a match that Liverpool really wanted to get something from. Um, so it was a big night for him. And I think the embrace for Klopp at the end really showed how happy he was with his performance. Um, so no, I thought it was a fantastic match for him. Absolutely. And I mean, it's not like he had nothing to do. Like, I think he's played himself into a position now where he probably is the number two. And I think Klopp's reaction afterwards um, might have affirmed that, especially coming up to the Wolves game. Um Apparently, he uh, completed 12 long-range passes, which is more than any um, other goalkeeper under Klopp for, for Liverpool, which is pretty mad when you think about it. Um, and I mean, if he has that kind of form with his foot and, you know, playing out from the back and this new-look Irish kind of setup, you know, if you do have a, a goalkeeper who is comfortable receiving the ball, um, and one thing I noticed last night is he kind of seemed fine receiving it whether his left or right. So you're kind of able to shift it onto either foot. But um, is he, if he's able to find guys up the field, that really has a, an extra dimension, um, especially to what Ireland do, where it's been a little bit laborious kind of seeing the likes of Shane Duffy bring it up from the back. Where Whereas if you have a, a goalkeeper who's able to kind of hit more long range, accurate passes, um, that could work just as well. Um, I don't know if either of you saw, um, I think it was Kenny Kidd's tweeted out, the last Irish player to start in the Champions League. Johnny O'Shea? It wasn't Johnny O'Shea, it was Owen O'Connell for Celtic back in 2016, who was now at Rochdale. Um, John O'Shea is the last one to play for an, England, for an English club. Yes. Yeah. Um, it just kind of goes to show the, and underline the, where we are with Ireland that you know Champions League players don't come along too often um, so it's good to see him um, in the mix and hopefully he'll be um, in the mix for the next couple of weeks and I said it last night um, Phil uh, like as bad as Adrian has been Alisson hasn't been hugely reliable in terms of his injury record so it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility that Kelleher could have could have a lot of football played between now and March um, certainly a lot more than, than Randolph will. Yeah, well, like, with with the nature of this season, um, any period of time that Alisson would miss would mean a lot of games for the sub-keeper. He missed nine league games mm-hmm. last year, Alisson, and he obviously missed the, the Champions League tie with Atletico that saw Liverpool get knocked out. Um, and then he, he's already missed a couple of uh, Premier League and Champions League games this season before with that shoulder injury. Uh, and, and now this kind of hamstring or tightness, muscle tightness, whatever it is. Um, so quietly, yeah, he, he well, maybe less quietly, given all the attention Adrian's got, but he has actually missed a comparatively large amount of games for a goalkeeper. Mm. Um, and like I said, like the, with the degree of, uh, to which the fixtures are piling up, any period of time, like 10 to 14 days, is quite significant in the in at the minute. It's a couple of Premier League games and one Champions League game. So straight away, he he played... Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's. I think the way it's going to go, uh, 14 days for Allison will take him up to the day before the Spurs game, but that takes in, I think, three Premier League games and a Champions League game. I think it's four games across 14 days, um, which would be a lot more than Darren Randolph could hope to play probably from now until March. Um, so, yeah, like, like we've been saying, if he's getting picked for his distribution and Stephen Kenny is looking to make us into a more possession-based team from our point of view... Um, and that Kelleher's comfortable doing that off either foot, and he's doing it every day in training in a high-quality environment, He's de- it, as Enda said, mm. it's definitely going to be at least a conversation. 
Yeah, I don't know what you think, but it's slightly odd the type of injuries Allison gets. You know, they're sort of niggly two to three week injuries. A lot of them, yeah. apart from that serious shoulder injury last year, so you know, quite odd for a keeper. And maybe this ties in nicely with Klopp's point that we're going to get to next about the games piling up. But I just always find it a bit odd the type of injuries he picks up for a keeper. I, I can't think of many off the top of my head. You know, for Liverpool, who would consistently be out for a few weeks with a few niggles like that so I know he does play <laughs> a bit more sweeper keeper than most and that might have something to do with it but um you know it's it's certainly given teams a, a better chance now um but it would be great to see Kelleher get a run of games just to see you know what he is capable of going forward you know um but yeah slightly slightly odd about Allison. it is yeah um and I remember the Initial injury he picked up at the start of last season, where um, where Adrian came in and, and actually did fairly well, um, for that run of Premier League games, um, and it was just was it about 30, 40 minutes into a game against Norwich, um, just kind of signaled to the bench like there was no impact, there was no real, um, kind of instant where you could look and see how he could have picked up the injury, um, and it was the same again the weekend. Apparently he um he picked it up after. 70 or 80 minutes and, and saw out the rest of the game but it's those kind of little niggles that um that he seems to be struggling with um, lads you mentioned fixture congestion and, and niggly injuries there um, and it brings us on to uh, this next point and I don't know what you make of Klopp's wage of war on, on the broadcasters um, regarding the, the fixture schedules um, I mean last week his side played Atlanta um, Wednesday night and then had the early Saturday kickoff, which they drew with Brighton. Um, he took on Des Kelly then in the post-match interview and although he probably has a good point to make, his, he kind of his, his argument was veiled in, in sarcasm directed at Des, which probably didn't do him a, a great deal of favour, especially with um, non-Liverpool fans. And uh, I don't know if if you'd agree with that, is is there a point to be had or, or is because the message coming from Klopp that some people kind of would rather ignore it and are happy to see Liverpool um, um, in this situation? Like, you're 1-0 up away from home and you can see the last-minute equaliser. I don't know how he's supposed to be, really. I mean, he's never been the best loser anyway, so oh, no. I think that's been part of his success, to be honest. So, I mean, I yeah, it comes across a bit sarcastic and, and narky. I remember, you know, the Everton game a few years ago sticks out as well on Sky Sports where it was very kind of um, on a bit of a mad one. But I, I didn't see anything wrong with his reaction on Saturday. I feel like for years, these post-match interviews, they've been trying to get another kind of Ron Atkinson, Kevin Keegan type outburst to focus on, you know, for a very long time, just trying to get a reaction out of managers. Um, and Klopp is somebody who I think they feel they can wind up because he has those, you know, standing there with the gritted teeth and kind of, you know, he's, you know, he wants to say something, you know. <laughs> so I think that kind of encourages the the vibe, uh, you know, rather than somebody like Jose who'll just say I, I'm not speaking today because he knows, you know, he's he's been there before. So uh, I I didn't really see anything anything wrong with the re- reaction per se. I mean, we discussed the Roy Keane thing a few weeks ago. It was a bit odd, you know. Um, you know, but I think that was more to do with time, and he'd only heard the last kind of couple of seconds of what the point Keane was yeah. making, and he picked that up wrong. So again, I I I, th- I felt that was overanalyzed to death as well. So I mean, overall, he's not a good loser, or you know, when he drops points, he's very frustrated. But I mean, a last minute penalty that went to VAR after having two offside goals ruled out, and you know, you're one nil up away from home after dropping points midweek in the Champions League. I mean, you're not going to be in great form, really. You know, Salah's gone off in a mood as well. So I mean, it wasn't. It was just one of those kind of bad moments where I don't think anybody wants a, a microphone shoved in their face at that moment in time. And Des Kelly is a bit of a smug kind of interviewer at the best of times <laughs> anyway. So uh, <laughs> for me, I was like, yeah, that reaction is fine. But I mean, if I was a Liverpool fan, I'd much rather see that than, you know, some of the rubbish I get from previous United managers as, you know, this is one of our best performances when you've just been played off the pitch or something <laughs> ridiculous like that, you know. So uh, nothing wrong for me. I think that's the big part of his success is the fact that, you know, I don't think he's the best loser. But yeah, he doesn't have these outbursts either. I've never, you know, he's toned it down a lot since his Dortmund days when he was a difficult kind of character at yeah. times. So I think he has adapted to kind of deal with the, um, you know, the pressure of being analyzed to death, your body language, no matter what you say, etc. So I think he has actually toned it down an awful lot. Um, so he kind of deals with it in that kind of sarcastic way and then just gets it over with. So that was fine for me. I think um, and is bang on there. They like they caught him, and they probably knew they were going to catch him at a bad time. And uh, not only with the drop points, but he was after seeing Milner go down with soft tissue injury. And after Milner went down, Nat Phillips had that kind of weird bang 
uh, with a high ball and it looked like Liverpool might have to finish mm. with 10. And he was already after having a run and row with Chris Wilder um, over the past week or so. So he was already hot about the injuries, the last minute penalty. Um, and I think there's also a little bit of um, that he, so he had a go at Sky obviously uh, after the last game, but Sky did it on a pre-record and didn't actually broadcast it uh, because he was very critical of Sky. So I think there was a little element as well of wanting to make that point on live television. Um, he probably would have rather to do it in a more kind of reasoned way. Like he was like coming out of the Leicester game, he was in a strong position. Liverpool were after a win and Everton was pretty rosy in the garden. And he made that point against to Sky and they didn't show it on telly. I'd say that would have annoyed him as well because um, I saw Rio Ferdinand say that Klopp is reminding him of Ferguson at the minute. I kind of see where he's coming from. I don't think he's as kind of reasoned or calm as Ferguson was like Enda says he, he does have a temperature he's, he's, and like Ferguson he's, he's a sore loser but I do think there is an element of him trying to get his message across um, effectively and like Des Kelly was saying why don't you go and speak to your owners uh, like, uh, Klopp's not stupid FSG are the people who sign his checks I mean he's going to push back to a degree but it's much more effective if he makes a point on national television mm-hmm. and gets people rowing in behind it and it's also the exact same point that Solskjaer made in a calmer manner to the same broadcaster a couple of weeks ago when they played Everton. And he said that it was ridiculous for them to be playing after playing on Wednesday, the half 12 on Saturday. He just did it in a less excitable manner and they were after winning. So it wasn't as much of a story. And Hmm. so I I, like, I understand why it was taken up because he was hot, but um, there's a kernel of truth there more than a kernel that uh, the other managers in Europe also agree with. Solskjaer's on record and as Enda said maybe Jose's a little too cute maybe to, to kind of dive into the conversation Oh no Jose makes it all the time yeah <laughs> <laughs> but uh, like I think the Premier League has been killing teams for years with this scheduling anyways yeah. I mean how many yeah. times do we see France and Germany and Spanish teams play on a Friday night yeah. the week before a Champions League match I mean to, to have to play away from home at lunchtime when you've travelled away, away from home in Europe like that's just insane as far as I'm concerned I don't care who you are Klopp, Solskjaer, Mourinho or anybody else I mean that's just it's not sustainable um, regardless of what your preparation or squad size is just the logistics involved in that um, is just crazy you know so I feel I felt sorry for Premier League teams in Europe for a very long time and I think it's one of the reasons why they have struggled to do so well in Europe until at least a couple of seasons ago where you almost have teams having to sacrifice um their their uh, league campaigns um, to go well in Europe, you know. Um, so I think it's something that has needed to change for a long time, and maybe this season it'll come to a head because these early Saturday kickoffs for BT Sport. I know they need the big teams involved, but you know at least pick a che- team who played on Tuesday or schedule it that way because the Wednesday to Saturday turnaround, I, I don't think any team's going to be able to manage that. You know, five or six times um, at least a season um, when they're playing in Europe. Yeah, like like Phil said, Oli has been has been fairly vocal about it. Frank Lampard as well um mentioned it a couple of weeks back regarding the the Wednesday, um, Saturday early morning kickoff turnaround. And I mean, a lot of people have been saying like it's 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 not up to the broadcasters, it's you know, it, it lays in the power of the of the Premier League clubs. Um and I don't think the, the television rights are, are are to be um redrawn up until until twenty twenty two. Um at the earliest so um, like there is a chance there for the broadcasters to throw the clubs a bone um, there obviously is I mean BT have I think that's their only slot of, of a Saturday is that early morning kickoff so they're obviously keen to get a big club in but um, you know if fresher continuous amount um, from the major ones that you know you're making us play less than 72 hours after our last game um you know, there's no reason for them not to, you know, just have a little bit of, not decency, but, you know, a little bit of respect towards the, the, the teams, especially given the season that we have with the, with the condensed um, schedule. Um, so, um, you know, maybe that's what Klopp is, is doing, you know, he wants to put the broadcasters under a little bit of, um, under a little bit of heat, um, knowing that ultimately nothing really can change. Like, they still have the ultimate... Um, decision to make in terms of what secures they they pick, but they might think twice um, if uh, yeah. if Liverpool are playing on Wednesday night and uh, of picking them. Um, I think at this stage, Klopp would probably be delighted with the with the five substitution uh, change if that came in. Um, 
But like 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 you said there, I mean, La Liga has been notoriously kind to likes of Barcelona and Madrid over the years. Um, a lot of the major European leagues have, have winter breaks um, as well after after Christmas. Like there, there's no let up for Premier League clubs um, whatsoever. Um, and obviously, like they're getting paid a lot of money to go out and play every week. But um, given the year that it is, and there's so much going on, um, something has to give um, eventually. Yeah, especially um, with two local speaking, club competitions as well, you know. So yeah, yeah. There's that like it's just it's just insane to me. Sorry. Um I'm just gonna say a quick point um on Real Madrid. Um and uh, they've lost twice now to Shakhtar Donetsk in the Champions League and haven't looked at all convincing in Europe like they usually tend to do. Three losses um in La Liga as well, really to teams that they should be beaten, um the likes of Cadiz and Alves. I don't know, is is this the early stages of, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but is this the early stages of Zidane maybe getting pushed out rather than walking out under his own power this time around? I, I think Zidane at Madrid has been a very strong-willed character, so I can see him walking rather than being pushed anyways. I mean, he walked the summer uh, he left the first time, um, and that really surprised everybody. Um, but I think what we're seeing now is is a big problem for Madrid in terms of they have a very large squad on paper, but if you look, the age disparity and experience disparity is a huge problem for them now. Yeah. They're still highly reliant on Benzema, the midfield trio of Casemiro, Cruz, Modric, and then um, Ramos at the back. And, you know, Zidane is one of these guys who's he's, he's going to go down with his, you know, tried and trusted players, but they're all in their kind of early to mid-30s now. And we're really seeing that they're on the decline it seems weird to say that because they finished, I think, with the mid-80 point range last season, which is, you know, a great return. And when they returned from lockdown, they were almost flawless. But, you know, Courtois had his best season um, probably of his career. So that was a big help for them. And then Varane, Ramos uh, and Casemiro rotated very well. Um, and Benzema has been uh, Madrid's best player since Zidane came back. But the bigger problem for them is... You know, how do they introduce all these other younger players that they have now and really start to transition out the old guard, if you like? I mean, if, if you look at who they have, Jovic, uh, Rodrigo, Vinicius Jr., uh, Renier, who's um, at Dortmund this season on loan. But this has really been coming for a couple of years now with some odd decisions Zidane has made, particularly in the fullback area. I mean, if he'd played his cards right, he could have a, a fullback pairing now of, of um, Hakimi and Reguilón. And I think if he had those starting now, I think that would fix a lot of his problems. At the moment, he's having to integrate Ferland Mondi after a 50 million signing a couple of seasons ago. Um, and he's having to kind of rely on a on an aging Danny Carvajal. So the balance isn't there. And every time Zidane's in trouble, he goes back to his tried and trusted. Um, and I just think that they're letting him down too often now. Courtois is starting to make a lot of mistakes this season as well. Um, he had a very bad game at the weekend. Um, and I just think that ultimately, are Madrid going to be strong enough to move Zidane on along with all these experienced players in one go and, and set themselves up mm. for this three to four year transition of integrating mm. all these young players that Perez has spent kind of three years putting together? Because on paper, it could be a very strong team in three or four years time with the likes of Jovic and Odegaard as well coming through. Mariano still very young. Um, so I think I can see them needing a situation where they maybe bring in somebody like Pochettino. But again, would he take that job knowing how tough it is to kind of repair your reputation if things don't work out in Madrid? Like, you know, as we saw with Rafa Benitez, as we saw with um, Sevilla's coach now, Lopetegui, they really suffered after quick, bad spells at Real Madrid. Um, and I'm not sure he'd take that risk, to be honest, at the moment. Um, uh, and one last thing is that Perez has, he really has struggled to find those kind of players in their mid-20s who would come in and, and have that instant impact. And I think that's why Zidane has had to go back to relying on, on his kind of old favourite players. They were supposed to sign, sign Donny van de Beek in the summer, but that fell through because mm. um, funds for COVID. Zidane has wanted to sign Pogba for two or three seasons. He wanted to sign Mbappe before PSG did. Those have all failed. And I think his frustration with the squad has been building for a long time. And he is a manager that when he falls out with players, it's it takes Mourinho-esque types of you know, impact to get back into his plans, as we saw with Bale, Isco, uh, Vinicius Jr. in his first spell, he couldn't get a game. So he's extremely stubborn to work with. Um, and I think it feels kind of like the beginning of the end of the Zidane era in terms of, you know, his two spells there. 
Um, and I, I can see huge changes coming in Madrid uh, very, very soon. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they manage that kind of two to three year spell, whether the fans will be patient enough with the new manager to start the rebuild with that much younger, fresher squad. But it'll be interesting to see how they manage that. But I think it'll be a very tough season um, for them to recover from where they are now. I mean, there was a report last night from one of the Spanish papers that said they don't want to be in the Europa League at any cost. I'm not sure how they negotiate that, you know? <laughs> Do they assess things at halftime in their final game and say, right, we're not um, we're not even going to partake? So that might be a situation to watch. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting to see kind of the dynasty coming to an end that's been built really since the early... Mourinho days of 2010 and 11 and that's kind of that cycle really is ending now um and what's been a hugely successful period for the club um but um I can see a really big change coming in the summer and one that he'll have to get right Perez uh if if he's going to find a manager who can actually work with what's quite a broken squad now at the moment that's kind of Hmm. classic modern Madrid though isn't it I mean they had that really great spell at the end of the 90s in, into the early 2000s and then had like basically a 10-year banter era uh, where whatever they didn't get past the quarterfinals or last 16 of the Champions League kept finding new ever-evolving ways to get knocked out and then like you said with that kind of Mourinho era ter- t- turned the tide and then Carlo getting the decima um, it, it, it feels like you said it's, it's a big summer to avoid slipping into a kind of a second modern banter, banter era uh, where, where where the recruitment is again like front and center. I mean, the great the funny thing about Madrid for like the, all the Galacticos that they sign, their recruitment is is, is like nonsensical. It doesn't it literally doesn't make any sense? It's all over the place. And um, like you said, they've got a good young core there of potentially brilliant players. And um, but th- it felt like and look, I know why Zidane ended up coming back for a second term, but it felt like that was the time to pull the trigger on a reboot. Uh, it was a clean slate. It was a chance to go again. And listen, they've won a league out of it. And it's not something they've won loads of over the last 10 years. So it's probably not to be sniffed at. But um, even still, it it felt like... It just feels like the old Madrid is still alive and well. That they're just kind of piecing things together. Uh, and the, the long term probably doesn't exist as much as, in, in practice as it does in theory. Yeah, I think the political nature of leagues in terms of, yeah. especially we see it a lot in Spain and Italy, where you have presidents coming in and literally having their terms filled with, you know, big signings, lots of yeah. money spent, and then they leave and it's carnage for the next few years after that. We've seen it now at Milan, they're starting to recover, Inter as well, and Juventus are kind of slipping back. Um, and we see that a lot with Spain. I think Barcelona are going to enter a similar period now when Messi goes and, yeah. you know, those years of failed recruitment. Um and then Laporte is probably going to come back in as president and try and do a Ronaldinho-esque signing for him again, like he did in 2004 to save his career. So I, th- I think that's part of the reason. Another thing is that, in fairness, I think Zidane, they did try and reboot with a new squad on paper anyways. I mean, Militao, Jovic, um, the two young Brazilians they signed, three young Brazilians they signed, actually, Ferlan Mende, but I just think that they were missing that bit of experience, that kind of 25, 26-year-old, two or three of those to come in like Modric did, like Cruz did, and really kind of set the tone for the next few years on how a team is going to play. Instead, he's trying to embed all these younger, less confident players who are still trying to find their way in the game. Yes, they were very good at their previous clubs, but still very inexperienced. Um, and they've had to kind of grow into this Madrid squad, which is... I imagine it's a very tough squad to integrate with when you've got such big characters like Sergio Ramos, Karim Benzema. Zidane himself is is a tough guy to get along with for, for any new young signings coming in. So yeah. I think they have tried to spend the money, but they've probably just not really signed the players that they needed um, to take to kind of begin the refresh um, and manage, manage the younger players through the next few seasons. <laughs> And depends on the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class 1, class 2, class 3. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when, when the class 1 eggs are in waitress and you cannot go there. <laughs>
Real Madrid, it's not Barcelona, it's an office small team, they have many problems. I want my players play with balls. Welcome Eric to Roche and to talk about Arsenal at the start of the season and everything going in it on on in and around the Emirates Stadium. First of all, Eric, congratulations on your recent transfer to the Athletic. Thanks. Um yeah, I think I mentioned off um off air I was quite surprised, but I think um since since taking the, the role I think I've managed to to express myself a little bit and hopefully people I enjoy my work there and um, yeah, hopefully that continues too. <laughs> mm. Great stuff. You're, you're still um, covering Arsenal, um, obviously. So um, I suppose to kick things off, like what sort, what sort of start to the season have Arsenal had? Um, they came out of last season with an FA Cup win. They had a couple of big results against Liverpool um, and it seemed like Arteta had them on the right trajectory at least, but everything kind of feels like a bit of a struggle so far this season. Would that be along the right lines? Yeah, I think you're not too far off there at all because when you look at the way Arsenal finished last season, especially um, winning the FA Cup against Chelsea, beating Manchester City in the semi-final, and of course Liverpool in the league in July, I think even Mikel Arteta has admitted that he had uh, bigger hopes for this season uh, in terms of where Arsenal are now and um, where he thought they would be. Um, and considering <laughs> they're lo- um, in the lower half of the table at the minute, I don't think any Arsenal fan or anybody following Arsenal would have expected that um, this year. So there's definitely uh, room for improvement, I think, um, from looking at it from the outside, the most glaring thing is the uh, creativity inside. And I think that's a a point that's been made by a lot of people, but it is the most crucial point because if you're not creating those chances for Aubameyang, Lacazette and Ketia, they're not going to score the goals. So that's probably the main issue. Whereas uh, compare, (laughs) compare Arsenal to where they were a year ago, and the defence has probably um, done a complete 180 where Arteta's found um, a base, a solid base with uh, the back three at first and then adding Gabriel Magal haste to that with uh, his summer arrival. I think that's where uh, Arteta's probably been strongest this season. But yeah. Um, as I'm sure everyone listening will know, uh, there's still improvements to be made uh, to Arsenal going forward this season. They've lost four of their last six games in the league now, and I am, um, I guess, the attention is starting to turn on Arteta for the first time really since since he took on the job. Um, and the honeymoon period is very much over. You mentioned he's drastically improved the defence. Um, is that probably his 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 main uh, achievement so far, or has there been other kind of improvements in other areas, uh, in terms of maybe squad harmony and kind of you know getting the club on the right path? Um, and I suppose what has he yet to sort out in the team? You mentioned the creativity, but is there still a, a couple of maybe loose ends that he, you know he'd like to to get to get started before? Um, you know, before long, and, and and try and stem this this uh, this run of of poor results that they've been having. Yeah, I think uh, when you mentioned maybe the biggest improvement under Mikata, the defense is probably that because even though uh, they have been losing games uh, recently, that defense has been what has kind of uh, seen them through games in the in recent months, especially. Uh, after lockdown, I think the move to back three after the first lockdown was what really helped him kind of find his feet in that spell. And then from there, he could create a platform with maybe the likes of Bukayo Saka, uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles as wingbacks where they're used a bit differently. They come inside 
in a, a lot more than the usual wing backs do, and that really helped Arsenal in, a, in an attacking sense. In terms of uh, the honeymoon honeymoon period being over, I think yeah, that is the case. I think um, the way the mood has changed um, on the outside has been very quick because of how quickly results have turned. Um, mm-hmm. But with that, I think those those of us who are on the outside do need to remember remember how much has changed in in the year that Mikata has been in what is his first job as a manager as well. Um, when he came in, yes, it, there was chaos around the final weeks of the Unai Emery era. And then uh, when you look at what's happened in the summer, especially, especially with the restructuring, restructuring of the cl- club, the redundancies being made, Raul Senlehi moving, uh, Arteta becoming, uh, being promoted to manager as opposed to head coach, which he was first appointed as. And uh, there's probably a lot more that I've, I can't think of at the minute, <laughs> but um, that there's been like a, I think Arteta mentioned it earlier today in his press conference, a major rebuild that's happened at the club. And, Having to perform on the pitch while doing that isn't going to be easy for anyone, I don't think. And another thing uh, that uh, you mentioned about Thomas Partey, I think, um, looking at that, obviously it's very unfortunate with the injury he he sustained, but I do think that uh, he would be um, very key to improving the Arsenal side at the minute because of the type of midfielder that he is in terms of bringing a bit more endurance in midfield, if that makes sense, in terms of Mm. just being able to last through games and also uh, cause problems both with and without the ball. And I don't think that's something uh, Danny Ceballos or Granit Xhaka do as well as he does. Uh, We'll get to some of the attacking options um, shortly, but... Staying under the fence for a minute um, and the impression that I have have had of Arsenal over the past couple of years is they've you know they've really struggled to find reliable defenders in the transfer market. Um, but this, it looks like they've sorted that now um, with Kieran Tierney um, kind of finally coming into his own since he, since he arrived from the Scottish Premier League. Um, and Gabriel as well has looked fantastic. And uh, Tierney's 23 Gabriel is 22 I mean that's a, a very good platform to to build off for the next couple of years there yeah Tierney has been very encouraging in, in particular I think uh, another thing with him was just being patient with the injuries that he had when he first came to the club from Celtic of course Arsenal fans had to wait a while for him to to get regular football he had a few minutes under Unai Emery but uh, I think it was a dislocated shoulder he got against West Ham last December, so this time last year, and then it we uh, and then they had to wait until um, project restart. I think it was called <laughs> um, to see him again uh, in the summer under Mikata. He really did impress in terms of being a, a left back that isn't scared to take his man on, go on the outside and whip across into the box or um, do a more reserved job as a centre-back, a left-sided centre-back in a back three, which, of course, he's a, is a job he's done for Scotland as well, um, which he did very well for Arsenal last season and in the early stages of this season. So I think Tierney in particular is a player that Arsenal fans have taken to extremely well, especially with the way he carries himself off the pitch. I think um, that's made him a very popular popular uh, player in the past year or so. Uh, in terms of Gabriel, he's another one who I feel is a, a great find in the market from Arsenal. Uh, as you mentioned, he's only 22 years old. And I think mm. when when you watch him live, uh, I think you, well, you can appreciate his defensive talent when you're watching him on TV. But um, when you actually see him up close and live, you you get a different appreciation for just his sheer size 
and what he does with that size. He he isn't, I'd say, an old school centre back in the fact where you're gonna be he's gonna be stepping on your toes <laughs> all game and stuff like that. He's very smart in the way that he he judges situations both in the air and on the ground. He doesn't dive into tackles too much, but when he does dive in, he often times those challenges very well. And I think in him, Arsenal found a very good uh, left-footed centre-back, which is something that Mikel Arteta has wanted since he's come into the club. And I think we saw that with him uh, signing Pablo Mari in January. Now he's got another one through the door, and I think uh, Gabriel will be uh, a great uh, partner for whoever is next to him, as well as Kieran Taney at left-back. Art, you mentioned Thomas Partey earlier and what Arsenal could possibly achieve when he comes back. Last year, Arteta kind of stumbled across this combination of Xhaka and Sebayas at the end of the season and worked quite well. And then El Nenny surprisingly came back and had a very strong preseason and actually played alongside Partey at Old Trafford and played quite well, actually. What do you see as the best midfield option to kind of create more chances for Arsenal going forward when everybody is back and fit again? Yeah, that's a it's a strange one, really, because like you mentioned, uh, Shaka and Sabios did play very well uh, at the back end of last season, where um, they were sort of the platform in midfield, and then they could then uh, supply the wing backs who were Arsenal's main attacking threats. So that's why I think they had such a good impact last season, because yes. Uh, there was a back three there, but they also were able to maybe drop a little bit deeper where they're more comfortable on the ball. And then the wing backs push higher so they can um, they can supply the forwards after that. And I think, uh, especially with a move to a back four, Arsenal don't really get that natural width. So that's where Shaka and Sabayas have maybe been struggling a little bit um, of late. And I feel that when you're looking at what Mikel Arteta will want with and without the ball, um, the stamina that both Partey and Elneny have help a massive deal because they can uh, help when the team is pressing high, but also uh, mop up uh, all the mess in the midfield as well and in front of the back four or three, whatever it is at the time. So... um, with that being said, <laughs> I think um, Thomas Partey is definitely in there. I believe Granite Shaka still has a place in the side uh, when he's playing at his best. And then if I, if he was registered, of course, Besser Ozil would get in for me. But he's not, so we have to take that into, into account. Uh, so I think Joe Willock is someone who... I know he... He kind of splits opinion among Arsenal fans, which is often the case with some of these youngsters coming into the side. But um, in the Europa League, I feel he's proved that he can offer something different to both um, Partey, Elneny, Xhaka and Ceballos. He, uh, especially down the channels in the right side of the final third, that's where he's been having a lot of fun recently in the Europa League and I think if he if Mikel Arteta was to replicate that in Premier League games of course the level of competition is different but I think that could be a potential for a blueprint going forward but uh, that being said I don't think that's going to be a midfield that gets Arsenal to where they properly want to be I think that's going to take a few uh, months or even a year or two. So, yeah, that's kind of my <laughs> my thoughts on the midfield. Art, if if we're talking about a midfield, um, with, with maybe lacks a bit of creativity. I, I, I'm not the first one who'll point out that Arsenal's most creative midfielder is currently acting as the world's best played social media admin. <laughs> uh, with as you mentioned, Mesut Ozil not having been registered in the Premier League squad. If, if this problem persists into the new year, uh and we come to the time when the squads are being resubmitted, is there a world where Ozil could find himself back in that squad? Is is there just too much water under the bridge? Um, or does he not offer enough in the other areas of the team that Arteta might ask for out of his midfield? Do you think Ozil is 
done or do you think that this uh, kind of stifled creativity offers them maybe a route back? I think in terms of um, bigger picture, his Arsenal career is, it does look like it's coming to an end, but in the immediate future, if that is the case in January and Arsenal is still looking for a creative midfielder, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say he he will be uh, registered again, but I can definitely see questions being asked to M- Mikel Arteta again in press conferences and uh, by other media outlets, ask him if he is going to uh, include Mesut Ozil in the, squ- in the Europa League and Premier League squads. I think we've all seen that uh, Ozil's been uh, training, even though he hasn't been available for these matches so if Arteta's seen him up close and is confident in him uh, speaking from a personal point of view I think he should give him a go but then you've also got to factor in uh, that if Ozil is looking to leave at the end of his contract this summer would he want to take the risk of maybe getting injured playing for Arsenal in the back end of this season and risk um, a potential move for next season. I'm not sure that's a risk anyone would take uh, that is in his position. And you've got, I think a lot of people have to kind of take that into consideration that Mesut Ozil's not a robot. <laughs> he's going to have, um, he's going to have things to weigh up in his mind for his future and Arsenal the same when thinking about him. So um, I think personally, I, I would give him a chance but again it's in Mikel Arteta's hands and whatever happens happens <laughs> and we, we spoke a bit at, at the start about the, the the kind of good feeling that was around the club at the back end of last season with the FA Cup and um, a, a good summer's business done and something that really added to that early in the season was uh, the signing of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang on a, on a new contract which was rightly heralded as, as a big deal for Arsenal that there was kind of real threat of him maybe moving on and um, but this season, he, he's been both kind of metaphorically and physically peripheral to Arsenal. He's, he's largely been out in the left. Um, he scored two league goals this year in 10 games. He's 22 in the previous two Premier League seasons, um, in, in each of those seasons. Um, he, he just feels a little less central, uh, bearing the pun, to, to what Arsenal have been doing. Um, is there an explanation for, for why Aubameyang isn't quite as central to, to Arsenal as he has been? Uh, and are his struggles systematic of Arsenal struggles or is he causing Arsenal struggles? I wouldn't say that it's him that is causing those struggles. I feel that when there was such a big spotlight on him being used on the left-hand side a few weeks back, I think people have to remember as well that under Arsene Wenger and Unai Emery, he was played off the left and was still contributing those goals, and even under Mikel Arteta last season, was played off the left and contributed those amount of goals where where he was used in more, maybe a floating role on the left, under Wenger and um, Emery, where he could drift inside a little bit more uh, and had less defensive responsibilities. Maybe that is something that has taken its toll, um, with especially how packed the schedule is, um, this season but yeah I don't think it is Aubameyang's doing to uh, so to say because he's not going to uh, he's not going to want to go out there and not score goals I think sometimes strikers can just get into those spells where things aren't happening for you and Mm. you get in a rut that may be what is happening with him at the moment, when you look at the chance he had against Wolves late on, the header from Hector Bellerin's uh, cross, nine times out of ten, you'd say he's scoring that, he's burying that, putting it in the top bin, wherever wherever you, you think he'd put it, you'd, you'd think it's going in the back of the net. And I think um, with uh, Mikel Arteta moving him into a more central position, now it's about finding the combinations to unlock his potential uh as a central striker for Arsenal. Um, and uh, last week against Mould in the Europa League, for instance, he used Alexandre Lacazette in a deeper uh, position where he was kind of feeding Reese Nelson and Eddie Nketiah a little bit more 
and I asked Nakata about that earlier uh, today, ahead of tomorrow's game, whether that is something that could happen a little bit more in the future. And he said it's something that can happen in the present and in the future. So that could be a possible solution, I'm not sure, uh, where Lacazette drops in and Aubameyang is the man that he uh, links up with a lot more. I'm not sure, but um, I think as well, it it comes from the struggles that Arsenal are having in the middle third of the pitch with their build-up play, where they're not being able to move the ball through midfield as quickly. Teams are being able to close them in tight gaps in certain areas of the pitch, and then they're just having to recycle the ball back to Bernd Leno or Alex Renarsson, whoever's in goal. And that's something that is going to have an impact on the striker, ultimately, because the more time the ball's spent in the Arsenal half, the less chances he has to score goals. So I wouldn't say it's a cause of Aubameyang's, but it is something that needs to be fixed and fixed soon. How much of, not necessarily the blame, but some of the attention should go to uh, some of the players around Aubameyang, um, the likes of Willian, who raised some eyebrows with his uh, signing um, during the transfer window on a, on a, on a free. Um, Nicolas Pepe as well hasn't really lived up to his uh, his transfer fee from from a season or two ago as well. Um, and Lacazette um, kind of tends to come in and out of games and... You mentioned earlier Reese Nelson, Eddie Nketia, like these are a couple of good young players. Gabriel Martinelli to come back in as well. Is is there a fear at Arsenal that they might be lacking a really good established second or third option in that front three um, that could reliably score goals like like you would find at some of the other top clubs uh, in England at the moment? I'm not sure if that's the case within the club. I think Mikel Arteta has... Uh, been very clear that he is happy with Alex Lacazette, even though everybody can see his production isn't where it should be. I think um, everybody can admit that even uh, the player himself would probably expect to be scoring more goals. With um, him in particular, I feel um, what hasn't helped is the ankle injuries he had early last season, which were recurring and then coming straight back from those uh, where his probably his most important asset before those injuries was his explosiveness explosiveness in a kind of five-yard space in, in and around the box where he was very, um, very impactful with that. That went almost straight away and we saw uh, the effects of that where his kind of his impact in the final third just dropped off a cliff, really. Mm. Um, and in terms of those other players around him, um, I don't think it's a secret that they need to step up. And be, I think we've seen flashes from Nicola Pepe, but it needs to be a bit more consistent. Well, not a bit more, uh, a lot more consistent, um, where he needs to be a bit more unpredictable. Arteta's tried to get that into his game ways. There have been almost like project games. I remember Brighton away in the summer in particular where the first five of Nicolas Pepe's dribbles were on the outside of his left back. And then when he finally dribbled inside, cut onto his left foot, he had the space to curl the ball into into the top corner Um, and just posing more questions to to the opposition is something that I feel um, those players need to do. Pepe, yes, now... He's suspended in the Premier League because of his red card at Leeds, but maybe the Europa League, the final two Europa League games can give him a chance to maybe gain some more confidence. He played well against Mould uh, last week where um, he he and Reese Nelson were Arsenal's main threats throughout the game. And hopefully for him, that can continue. And they then maybe he can pick up again when, he, when he's back in Premier League action. But... Uh, also, again, I think looking at the players further further down the pitch in more central midfield positions, they also need to be helping in terms of goals too because um, any successful team is going to need that um, added contribution, not just from strikers and wingers, but um, midfielders too. 
tomorrow night um it's going to be a pretty big milestone um for football in England um after the year that was with coronavirus um Arsenal will be the first team to host fans um against Rapid Vienna in the Europa League I think it's up to 2000 fans um and you wrote a piece today for the Athletic what what will post lockdown football look like um like what sort of procedures and limitations are in place uh, at the Emirates for uh, for the game tomorrow yeah so uh first game with fans back at the Emirates since March the 1-0 win over West Ham which is going to be uh, really exciting for all involved and I think it's a, a really positive sign in terms of where football is potentially going back to that new oh that old normal maybe I'd say mm. <laughs> um <laughs> and yeah I think there are some games across the EFL that have fans back tonight, actually, which is a, a great thing as well. I thought I'd just mention that quickly. But in terms of the Emirates tomorrow night, yep, it's going to be uh, 2,000 uh, fans back at the Emirates Stadium where they got to work uh, the day after the loss to Wolves. Uh, so Monday, they got to work on getting preparations in and around the ground ready for Thursday night where... Uh, a large amount of uh, staff volunteered to kind of clear clear all the decorations and seat coverings that were at the Emirates uh, that have been at the Emirates during these kind of behind closed doors games to get things ready. Uh, Gunnosaurus is going to be back, <laughs> which <laughs> I know a lot of Arsenal fans are going to be excited about. Um, <laughs> um, and then also in terms of more... Um, serious stuff there's going to be uh temperature check-in uh, stations around the stadium uh security checks aren't going to be like full contact so they're going to have security ones where they can just do it with social distancing uh face masks are going to be compulsory at all times there's going to be social distancing in terms of um the seating which is going to be majority of people in the in the lower tier and then some in club level which is the middle tier of the seat and and I, um it's going to be most mostly in the north bank and east stand um so the clock end and west stand aren't going to be available the west stand is where the press and the substitutes bench the club staff are all situated so that kind of makes sense and then uh, another quite cool um, thing to include from Arsenal is the fact that uh, each of the 2000 match day programs are going to be numbered for the fans that are at the stadium tomorrow. So um, that'll be a little piece of history, I guess, for, mm. for those that are at the ground uh, tomorrow for to keep for years to come. Nice little memento there for, um, for the, for the lucky few who get in. Um, I suppose, Looking a bit further into the season then, Art, um, Arsenal are 14th in the Premier League. They're flying it um, in Europa League so far um, in a relatively uh, good group for them, um, including our own Dundalk, who uh, unfortunately weren't able to <laughs> lay a glove on Arsenal um, a couple of weeks back. What's, what's the expectation for Arsenal towards the end of the season? I mean, they've had a very good record in the FA Cup like will they, would, would fans be happy with another cup run or will they be looking at that Premier League table and thinking you know we really need to get up into Champions League conversation um, and quick or is is, is the is the mood a little bit more tempered that you know they'd be pretty happy with a, a good European run and, and maybe a, a domestic cup yeah I definitely think Arsenal fans would be happy with a, a European run I think the way Mikel Arteta approached the group stage, especially maybe through some fans a little bit, because they expected to see a bit more rotation in the side with youngsters given a little bit more of a chance. Mm. Whereas he's gone very strong, uh, especially in the first three group games to kind of get control of the group and then have that breathing space that he now has for the final two group games. And I think that's kind of the real... Uh, marker of how he's viewing the Europa League. We've also got to remember how disappointing it was for Arsenal to be knocked out last year by uh, Olympiacos in the round of 32, which is 
which to this day stands as Mikarteta's only loss in cup competitions. Of course, he won the FA Cup last season and he's still in the Carabao Cup this year and hasn't lost in the hasn't lost in Europa League this year. So he is going to want to continue that good form in terms of cup competitions. And I feel uh, Arsenal fans will will gladly welcome uh, a, a European one where they could potentially secure um, Champions League football again if they go on to win the competition in uh, in May. I believe the final is. I can't remember if <laughs> if they if they changed the dates for that yet or not. But um, yeah, I feel that that will be the case. And um, with that. Yeah, we'll see what uh, what Mikel Arteta's ambitions are for for Europe. Great stuff, Eric. Thanks for coming on tonight. Thanks for having me, guys.